thank you for tuning in to episode six of Animals in Irish Society. This is just a quick introduction to let you know that this last episode in the series was recorded live during St. Patrick's Day 2021. Um, and it was done on Facebook, so I do a little bit of interaction with some of the people in the chat there. There's no associated PowerPoint or anything like that, so you should be able to follow it easy enough. Um, yeah, so this is in celebration of all the amazing Irish animal activists who've been hard at work since at least the 1600s, trying to make the world a better place for other animals. And I couldn't possibly fit everything into this podcast series. So if you want to learn more, definitely check out my book, Animals in Irish Society, published with State University of New York Press, 2021. Uh, unfortunately, it does have a bit of an academic price tag associated with it at this time. So if you want to check out some of this stuff for free, go to my website at coreyleewren.com. I've got blogs, essays, and so much more there. Um, so without further ado, let's get going on this last last contribution to this podcast series and also one last shout out to my amazing brother Jonathan for this really cool uh, music that he composed for the for this show um, using I might add a boron that I bought him for Christmas last year <laughs> so thanks again folks My name is Dr. Corey Wren, and I am a lecturer in sociology at the University of Kent. I specialize in the history and politics of the Western animal rights movement and animals and society more generally. I'm the past chair of the Animals and Society section of the American Sociological Association and a member of the Research Advisory Council for the Vegan Society and uh, also the founder of the International Association for Vegan Sociologists. And I am the author of the book Animals in Irish Society, which publishes with SUNY Press in July. So in support of that, I have been a very busy little bee, and I've created a podcast series, Animals in Irish Society, which you can find on my website at coreyleewren.com. I have several blog posts and short essays um, and published work in academic journals on the topic of animals in Irish society. But since today is St. Patrick's Day, I thought we might celebrate by learning about some of the forgotten history of Irish animal rights. And I do say forgotten because I can tell you as a scholar of the animal rights movement that very little is remembered and celebrated about Irish contributions to the animal rights movement in the West, which to me is a cry and shame because Ireland has contributed so much to that story um, in two ways. First, there's lots and lots of amazing activists who have done so much to advance animal rights in Ireland and in the West more broadly. But also, because Ireland was a colony, the first colony of Great Britain, there's a unique story there about the treatment of the Irish people, the relationship between colonial oppression and the importation and aggravation of animal agriculture. Um, Irish people have been animalized for much of that, that colonial history. So there's a lot that is unique to Ireland's story as far as understanding the rise of animal rights um, the, the role that non-human animals play in our society more generally. Before I get going, I'm going to crack, well, I've already cracked it in case it spews, because it often does. And it's shame, shame, I got a Guinness in a can. I oh, know, I should be 
<laughs> locked up. But it is, speaking of lock up, it is locked down here in uh, the UK where I'm broadca broadcasting from. So unfortunately, it is Guinness in a can. Um, so if you'll just bear with me. So Guinness is vegan, by the way. And see if I can get a poll up here. See if you know when Guinness went vegan. It used to have Isinglass in it, which is from fish bladders. Uh, Guinness was also promoted to um, to folks of Ireland. Guinness is a very old brewery since the 1700s, and it was promoted to folks during famine times because it was thought to be so nutritious and um, hearty and most affordably, or most importantly, it was affordable. So, slancha. Not as good as at the pub, but it'll do. Oh, this is my favorite day of the year, but probably because Guinness is my favorite beer. <laughs> okay. Uh, one person has already voted. Uh, two people have voted. One person is right. One person is not right. I will, I will not give away the answer in case people come in later. All right. So, like I said, I want to cover the history of the animal rights, um, of animal rights agitation in Ireland. And I could go on and on and on, but I thought that what I would do is spotlight some of the folks that I have investigated in my book uh, and give you a little bit of their history. Unfortunately, a lot of that history is unknown and uh, they've been lost to time. And I actually had, had reached out through, um, in Ireland, Ireland is such a small country. They have a forum that almost everybody in the country is a member of this forum and it's, you could just go in there and ask all kinds of questions. And I actually went on that forum and asked people, is anyone descended from these amazing people? Because you can't find much about them anymore. And unfortunately, I didn't get any bites. So if you're watching this and this is one of your great grandmas or grandfathers, you know, give me a shout, send me an email. I'd love to learn more about them. All right, so as I said, Ireland was the first colony of Great Britain. And this, they've really, Ireland had been colonized for many hundreds of years. Uh, there was the coming of Christianity in the, in the, the so-called Dark Ages, the coming of the Celts in the 400s, the Normans in the 1100s, the Vikings came uh, here and there, Cork and Dublin are very famously old Viking cities. But historians of, Ir of Irish history oftentimes create the dividing point between uh, British colonization and everything that happened before that. <laughs> so we're looking at about the 1500s. I'm going to be looking at the kind of the post the colonial colonial point and then beyond. One of the interesting, one of the very first protests that I was able to find in in Ireland was in in the age of vivisection. When we think about vivisection, we often think about um, uh, England, where a lot of that actually originated. Um, but because Ireland was part of England, a lot of that Irish uh, uh, English practice trickled over to Ireland. There was a lot of British doctors who were in Ireland doing that research. Um, there is uh, a, a tale of a, a guy named Edmund O'Meara, who was one of the first to protest vivisection on the grounds that, you know, not only was it cruel to animals, but he argued this is just bad science. So that's way on back there in the 1600s. Also in the 1600s, we have uh, legislation, colonial legislation, on the agricultural treatment of, of horses and sheep. Um, so basically, this was legislation that was not really about animal rights. Unfortunately, it was more about kind of taxing the Irish people, the Irish peasantry. 
And I'm not going to get into the whole colonial history of Ireland, but the main reason that Ireland was colonized was to make basically turn it into an outsourced feedlot for grow for um, for beef and dairy production. So a lot of the Irish people were pushed off their land, made into tenants, and uh, really made vulnerable. So uh, there was there was a there was another money making enterprise with the treatment of of non human animals. So by making it uh, illegal to use to tie your plow to, to or tie your horse's tail to a plow and use your and use your plow like that which was kind of typical not just in ireland i think that that happened elsewhere um they made that illegal and then they were able to basically find irish people irish farmers who did that and it seems like pretty ridiculous why would you tie your horse's tail to your plow why not just put the horse in a harness of some sort it's been suggested that perhaps folks did that for two reasons first the harness is expensive and these are very poor people under colonial, intense colonial oppression, but also rocky, the rocky soil of Ireland. It's been thought that if a horse was tied by the tail, if they felt a bump when the plow hit a rock, then they would stop and not damage the equipment. Uh, but nonetheless, it was basically a tax. Um, the work of Piers Byrne, who's a animal rights uh, and criminology historian, has looked into this, and people really couldn't afford to do otherwise, so they would just simply pay in order to continue the practice. There's also legislation that reaches back to the 1600s in Ireland on the plucking of sheeps. So this idea that they would pull the hair or the wool from them without shearing them. And all this was part of this grand enterprise of, of portraying the Irish people as especially barbaric. Um, there's also rumors that they let their cows eat so much that they would explode, which probably actually referred to just bloat, which happens to a lot of um, livestock. Also, in the, in the 1700s, we're moving on for another century beyond that, we start to see um, some poetry and literature that is uh, critical of animal injustices that are happening in Ireland, which is also typical of the British Isles in general, like bull baiting and hunting. Um, but I want to go, I want to jump ahead to the 1800s, because this is where we start to really get our hands in. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but the Cruel Treatment of Cattle Act, which was thought to really spark the modern animal rights movement, uh, was actually brought to Parliament and successively defended by an Irish guy, an MP named Richard Martin from Galway. What? So this, for me, is very, very interesting that we're, we're looking at the history of animal rights and a lot of people who know about that history know all about the Cruel Treatment of Cattle Act and in England, but a lot of people don't know. It was an Irish person who really fought for that. His name is Richard Martin, and he wasn't just interested in um, helping other animals. He was uh, really interested in lots of charity work, honestly, and he actually got the nickname from the King, King George at the time, of Humanity Dick. Uh, he actually got mocked quite a lot for that. Um, there's a painting, which I've included in my book, where uh, he had brought to court a donkey that had been really severely abused, and he brought the donkey into the court to show people how the donkey had been hurt so badly. But it really became a mockery. People made a lot of fun of him uh, for that and sort of to depict him as a donkey as well. But he really was, he was a tireless defender of animals throughout the rest of his life. In fact, when the uh, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to animals formed in 1824 because as a kind of consequence of that act that formed that was passed in 1822 uh the way the spca worked in those days which is actually kind of the way it works today is that you kind of it was citizen funded and citizen run and back in the early days when people were just trying to kind of get a footing they they were having trouble with finances and in fact one of the early presidents ended up in the poorhouse and uh 
Richard Martin had to actually bail him out. So yeah, Richard Martin, the MP from Galway, brought us the very first um, cruel treatment of, of cattle act, which is really the major legislation that's about animal um, animal abuse, animal cruelty. The earlier ones from the 1600s were not so much about animal cruelty. They were more about kind of penalizing the Irish. So, um, let's see. Then if we fast forward to the 1830s, so yeah, the SPCA forms in 1824, but by 1838, now we have a public that is a lot more attuned to this concept of animal rights. So remember, even in the 1700s, there was uh, a lot of research, uh, not research, but poetry and, well, I guess research, uh, essays, writings about this. Um, there was a lot of pushback against bull baiting and cock throwing, which is an old timey form of entertainment where people would just literally throw rocks at uh, chickens and um, roosters until they died. Uh, and I'm sure they bet put bets on that stuff as well. So anyway, by the 1800s, um, this kind of idea that animals maybe are sentient and feel pain and are self-aware and shouldn't be treated in this way was becoming a lot more normal and a lot more popular in the public discourse. So not just in England and not just in the United States, but also in Ireland. So here's a guy that I bet you've never heard of, and I had never heard of until I started doing research for this book, a guy named William Drummond. In 1838, he publishes a book called The Rights of Animals and Man's Obligation to Treat Them with Humanity. And he actually had originally penned this as an essay for, for a um, contest with the SPCA. He missed the deadline and his colleagues were like, you gotta, you gotta publish this. And so he does, he publishes it in, in Ireland. He was an Irish guy. A lot of people actually may have heard of this this person, William Drummond, because he's famous for his Irish um, naturalism. He wrote a lot about um, the natural spaces, which is kind of popular in the early 1800s. Um, but nobody really remembers him for his animal rights work. So this book, I, I think, was probably the first major animal rights book written in Ireland. The Rights of Animals and Man's Obligation to Treat Them with Humanity. This guy was also very influential to um, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, who was a famous abolitionist in the United States. They actually had met. He passed on a copy of this book and their letters that remain um, of correspondence. And William Lloyd Garrison was extremely exci excited by what he had read. He says, the rights of animals, can you imagine? He was very excited by that. Um, I also want to talk about the Houghton father and son uh, duo, and hopefully I don't mix these two guys up. I think John was the father, and then Sam was the son, and John, or don't quote me on this because I always mix up John and Sam, but one of them, I think it was John, actually founded the, um, the Dublin Zoo, and he was very much so interested in not just a zoo. I mean, zoos are quite contentious today. And in fact, they were quite contentious back then. And a lot of these zoos were really kind of colonial spectacles. And so you have to wonder why they would want to set up a zoo in Dublin at the heart of uh, England's colony. Um, I think it also had a lot to do with showing Britain's might and strength. Indeed, a lot of the early animals from that were living in the Dublin Zoo came from the London Tower. Anyway, there was a lot of different people who were on board to support the, the creation of the Dublin Zoo. And one of them was this John Houghton guy 
who thought that if we could create this zoo, it will give the public a way to interact with animals and increase their compassion towards other animals. So again, this is a time when bull baiting, cock throwing, cock fighting, dog fighting, uh, all these things, really brutal types of um, violence against animals was quite normal at the time. So they were hoping that this is a way that would teach people to, to interact with animals in a kinder way, or at least be more appreciative. After him, Sam, his son, uh, also was a major patron of that zoo, but he was also a major vegetarian activist. He was an animal rights activist and a vegetarian activist. Um, and he wrote and spoke quite a lot. He was a leader in, I think, the Dublin Vegetarian Society. And so this is back in the 1850s and 60s or so. So these are people who are working in Ireland to, to advocate for other animals at a time where we don't really think about animal rights activism in Ireland. We just think about uh, the immense uh, human suffering that was happening. But a lot of these activists were acutely aware. They were aware that there was intersections between the treatment of non-human animals and the treatment of the Irish people. And people like Sam Houghton would say, you know, this suffering of Irish folks would not happen if we didn't have animal agriculture here taking over. If more people were vegetarian, we wouldn't have land used up for, for cows and sheep and other animals. Um, so a lot of them were acutely aware that vegetarianism was going to be key to that. In fact, they, they thought that a, veg, a hearty vegetarian diet could bring up the health of the populace. So you've got to think about also Ireland in the 1800s, not just under famine times, but just in general, in the Victorian era, a lot of people just had poor nutrition and were suffering a lot of disease and illness. So folks like Sam Houghton would say, well, look, I'm immune to cholera because I have this healthy vegetarian diet. So these were some folks who were really, really down on the ground and doing a lot of important institutional work, but also um, uh, just activist work. And so he actually published in the, I think it's the Northern Star, William Lloyd Garrison's uh, publication on, against slavery in the United States. So they were all quite interested in how this relates to other human rights issues. Uh, in 1874, another interesting anti-vivisection uh, protest uh, was, takes place by two Anglo-Irish physicians. So remember that even in the 1600s, we have evidence of Irish doctors who were saying this vivisection stuff is really messed up and just bad science. Well, this is an interesting incident that I found. In 1874, vivisection was really coming into its own in that time, and a lot of people were quite suspicious of it. And for good reason. There was a fear that what people are doing, what these doctors are doing to animals, they could also start doing to people. So for instance, in the United States, there were vivisectionists who did, in fact, test on Irish women who weren't seen as fully human. They were seen as subhuman. And women in general, so women in, in England were also very fearful. Um, there was another activist called Frances Power Cobb, who was an Irish woman who was a very ardent uh, critic of the vivisection industry. And she also was not just, she was a major animal lover, but she was also really worried about the intersections between uh, animals and women and would women be vivisected upon. And in fact, they were. And of course, slaves were as well. So anyway, there was um, a lot of kind of cultural suspicion of vivisection, but it was growing. The scientific institutions really growing and coming to, an, to its own in the Victorian era. Anyway, this particular incident, there was a French vivisectionist who was visiting. He was um, giving a, a, a display um, on, on injecting alcohol and absinthe into dogs. Now, mind you, back then there was no anesthesia for these animals. There was no way to kill their pain. They were just tested on fully conscious and fully aware. And there was a belief for long, a lot, a lot of people had this kind of intentional ignorance. Well, these animals can't feel, 
what's happening to them. They don't really know what's going on. But in this case, um, one of the doctors intervened, or it was actually two of the doctors intervened and said, look, these dogs are fully aware and this is cruel. And he says, I'm a sportsman and I won't suffer a dog to be bullied. And so they break loose one of the dogs to show that the dog is fully conscious, fully aware. The dog is freaking out, running around. They actually stopped the whole the whole experiment and put it to a vote. Should we continue or not? Unfortunately for that dog and his companions, the experiments went on. But it was such a major incident that these two Irish doctors had disrupted this, um, this horrific um, expose that the RSPCA actually investigated it. So as I mentioned, Francis Power Cobb is a real powerhouse and anti-vivisectionist. So there wasn't just wasn't just men who were working for other animals in Ireland. It was also a lot of women. And Francis Power Cobb is perhaps the most famous of those because two of her organizations still persist today, two anti-vivisection organizations. Uh, so she was a major dog lover and she was a, a ardent feminist. That was probably her main calling was feminism, but she ended up pinning several actually probably in the hundreds of anti-vivisectionist essays. She was well-born, so she had a lot of power and clout, and she was really a force to be reckoned with. She was a major um, contributor to what eventually would pass in the 1870s, the Britain's Cruelty to Animals Act, which was supposed to clamp down on vivisection. Unfortunately, all it did was offer it a veneer of legitimacy. Um, and really didn't do anything to curb vivisection, but actually made it more normal. People thought, oh, it's being regulated, so what's the worry here? That actually pissed her off really bad, and she thought that that's it, I'm not going to work to regulate anything anymore, I'm working to abolish, and it caused a lot of discord within the animal rights movement of which she was a part. Um, we can also kind of look outside of the animal rights kind of sphere of people who are like doing the political work and look into the arts. George Bernard Shaw, Ireland's beloved Shaw, playwright and author, um, he was a avid, avid supporter of animal rights and was a vegetarian. He became vegetarian in 1880 and remained so for the rest of his life. Uh, he was very good friends with Henry Salt. Henry Salt was a British activist who's um, penned one of the most famous animal rights texts out there. And um, yeah, they would visit each other quite a lot. George Bernard Shaw was... Um, he said a lot, of, a lot of interesting things about him. One of the things was that he was he would not hold back. <laughs> he was very he's like he's like that guy you know the, the you know when you you know when you meet a vegan because they tell you that kind of guy. Uh, he was always challenging people to do competitive sports to prove that his vegetarian body was stronger, more capable. Um, it, Henry Salt once quoted that they went to go visit a, a, a country woman's new estate and she had just had the floors stained red with bull's blood. And she was asking, what shall I call my new estate that I've just built? And Shaw goes, Goresville. <laughs> Which, that, I mean, that kind of bluntness at the time actually pissed off a lot of people. But he was, you know, he was a character. There's a reason why history did remember him. And I will say, though, although history has remembered and cherished George Bernard, Bernard Shaw, very few people are aware about, of his activism, his animal activism, and his vegetarianism. I actually consulted several biographies of, of his when I was putting my own book together, and very little mention was made. He was very much so against uh, vivisection as well. There was an unfortunate episode towards the end of his life where he became quite anemic. He was having uh, health issues. And at the time, you know, science was still in the works and um, treatments were still um, 
being developed. And so his doctors were injecting him with animal liver in order to build up his strength. And so he only temporarily gave up his vegetarianism. And um, the vegetarian movement just went to town. It was a major scandal. Um, first off, at the time, people were very much so aware of his vegetarianism. It was a major part of his character. But the vegetarian movement was really idolized him as a major celebrity that they could look to. And so when he briefly went off of vegetarianism for his health, uh, he was really attacked for that. And for the rest of his life, he was very skeptical then of the vegan movement for making false claims about um, health and nutrition and longevity. Like vegetarians and vegans get sick and die as well. So good old Bernard Shaw. So he actually worked a little bit with a, another fascinating woman, another fascinating Irish woman, uh, uh, Charlotte Despard. And she was a jack of all trades, a Jill of all trades. She was a nationalist, so she was very much so involved in uh, home rule for Ireland. She had um, a lot of amazing projects she did that also intersected with her nationalism, but also with her vegetarianism. She was an ardent anti-vivisectionist and a vegetarian, and she was involved with a lot of vegetarian organizations. So she would do stuff on her property, like she would create um, little businesses where they would, like jam, there was a jam making op operation that she did. So it was a vegetarian food, production on her property that allowed um, support for Irish-made foods and support for Irish labor. And this is something that continues even today, where Ireland tries to you know, buy Irish, grow Irish, Irish, support Irish. This kind of food politics has always been very fundamental to Ireland's independence. So as I mentioned, she was also a, an ardent anti-vivisectionist oh, and a suffragette. She was a hardcore feminist as well. She's just a super cool woman. But what really I think is fascinating about her history in the t context of animal rights is that she was the one behind the Brown Dog Affair. The Brown Dog Affair was uh, basically they had created a statue to memorialize all the animals that had been killed and were suffering in vivisection. And they just chose this little brown dog as the mascot of that. And they made a statue and they chose to put it in Battersea, London. They chose that site intentionally. That part of London, there were a lot of Irish immigrants, there were a lot of nationalists, there were a lot of home rulers, uh, there were a lot of people who were labor activists. It was basically a hotbed of leftist um, resistance. And she knew that people there would understand what vivisection meant in this larger conversation. She knew that the people there would support it, and indeed they did. So what happened is when they first erected the statue, it created severe counter-protests. The medical school in, nearby, in London, all the students, mostly, of course, men, waved down into this, the community, and they were trying to fight to get it torn down. And there would have to be a lot of police presence. Actually, the um, brown dog supporters, they had to hire a lot of Irish nationalists to, to, as guards when they had planning meetings and things like that, and they would wear green ribbons to indicate who they were. Eventually, that, that statue, after so much back and forth, the London government said, the London police said, we can't afford to keep policing this site, so either you fund to support and protect this place, or the statue has got to go. Well, this is Battersea, London in the 18, early, uh, early 1900s. They didn't have that kind of money, so the statue had to go. The statue is there, a new a variation of that statue is now there today, which you can actually go and check out. Speaking about these connections with Irish nationalism and animal rights, we actually the same the same thing goes in the in the U, in the UK, but also in Ireland. A lot of the vegetarian um, restaurants that emerged in the late 1800s, early 1900s were hotbeds of nationalist activity. 
There was the College Vegetarian Restaurant in Dublin. There was the Sunshine Vegetarian Dining Rooms that opened in 1891. Um, supposedly, the uh, there was one of these, and I can't remember the name, it's something like the Farmer's Market or something that was sold only Irish-made produce. It was run by a suffragette and an Irish nationalist named Jenny Wise. And supposedly, the 1916 proclamation was actually signed in her vegetarian restaurant. So lots of amazing intersections there. I want to also give a shout out. There was a lot of vegetarian societies that were forming in this era. So in the 1890s, we had the Irish Vegetarian Union in Belfast, the Lisburn Vegetarian Society, the London Dairy Vegetarian Society, the Dublin Vegetarian Society. In 1890, the Irish Vegetarian Union joins with the Vegetarian Federal Union of you know, the wider world. <laughs> so there's a lot of activity that was happening in this in the late 1800s that coincides with all these other amazing political movements. Okay, so maybe I, want, I don't want to dwell too much in, in the distant past. I want to bring it up to speed a little bit more. Uh, with the animal rights movement, there is a, it enters in a, a period of abeyance in the, in the era between the Great World War and then the Second World War. And then, of course, in Ireland's case, it's also dealing with its Irish independence war and the war of, of the Civil War that was kind of tangled up with that. Um, so the vegetarian restaurants kind of dissipate after that, um, but there's still some organization that's happening in the early part of the 1900s. There's the Irish uh, Vegetarian Union, the Irish Vegetarian, so Vegetarian Society in Dublin, um, the Ulster Vegetarian Society forms in, eight, in 1932, so uh, not long after the Constitution comes out in the Republic. Then in 1944 in Britain, the, veg the Vegan Society forms. They do a lot of outreach in Ireland, and in fact, I've, one of the neat ways to get a, a sneak, sneaky peek into the vegan activism at that time was I actually looked in the classified ads of these early issues of The Vegan, which is the annual, uh, the monthly journal of the, the Vegan Society. And you can see the different places in Ireland are, ha are, are advertising vegan accommodation, vegan B&Bs. I mean, back in the 40s and the 50s, so very cool. In 1946, after World War II, the Dublin Vegetarian Society kind of re, uh, regroups and comes back to life. Um, then in 1949, there's this really fascinating article called The Only Vegan in Ireland. And the Irish press does this interview with a woman named Moira Henry. And you can, it's a very short little piece, but in that piece, she talks about what it's like to be vegan in Ireland in the 1940s. And her biggest complaint is rationing, like a lot of people. Uh, at that time and she was also complaining about how england had so many more amazing um, meat analogs and nut butters and things like that so there were there were irish people who were vegan for political reasons not just because of of necessity so of course under colonialism and in the era of the famines a lot of people were eating vegan because they had no other choice most people were getting about 90 percent of their calories from potatoes uh, and milk was very scarce. A lot of it was being just shipped off to industrializing Britain. But by the middle of the 20th century, now we have people who are being vegan for political reasons with explicit recognition of the importance of animal rights. Now I get to talk about my favorite, my favorite long-lost vegan hero from Ireland. And this is a guy named Jack McClelland. Jack McClelland was this super amazing... A uh, multi-talented athlete of all sorts. Don't forget my Guinness here. Oh, God. It's a nectar of life there. 
Jack McClellan was this amazing athlete. He got a start in boxing. He's from Northern Ireland. And um, after he got out of boxing, like most people do, you can't sustain that kind of career for very long. He went on to do long distance swimming. Now mind you, he did all kinds of different um, sports and competitive sports, but the one that made him famous was his long distance swimming. So this is, you know, back in the 60s when a lot of these things had never been attempted before and he would do um, major lakes, channels, the Irish Sea, you name it. And there's many, many um, of his exploits that are documented in The Vegan, which is the publication of The Vegan Society, but also major newspapers in Ireland would cover a lot of this. It was a major fanfare and it was always, you know, nail biting because what's going to happen? There was, some t there was one incident where he was, I think, swimming in the Galway Bay where he went missing for an hour and people were really, really scared and really worried. He ran into jellyfish, submerged giant rocks that could rip his legs up, uh, sharks, um, all kinds of dangerous currents. He was a really, he was just a badass. He was an amazing guy. And he was completely vegan for animal rights reasons and for health reasons. He was a major animal rights activist for his entire life. He was, he was a major leader in the Vegan Society and also the International Vegetarian Union. He ran um, a number of health food chains in Northern Ireland and, and made vegan eating possible for other people as well by opening up these stores. Really sadly, I actually looked up the address of one of those stores in Belfast and it's now a butcher shop, <laughs> which he would be rolling in his grave if he knew about that. Uh, but this is a time in the 1960s when he's doing this work that a lot of people weren't really aware, like how, how veganism really worked and how can it sustain people. And if you look up pictures of him, he's this big, bulky dude. He's not a small guy, right? He's a boxer. He's a huge athlete. And there's no way you can look at this man and say that veganism makes you weak. There's just no way. He was a, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, and it's even been said that when he did his swim of um, the Galway Bay, more people came out to watch his swim then actually came out to see Jack, uh, JFK, Jack Kennedy, when he came. I don't know if that's true, but that's what's said. Uh, indeed, there's old videos that still remain where you can see the great fanfare people came. This is like major stuff back in the 1960s. So a huge, amazing uh, vegan athlete that was really, really brought a lot of credibility to the movement. And the vegan society just loved him. Um, his wife was also really active as well. And... Um, he was a really compassionate man as well. He really did believe um, that the troubles, a lot of the troubles, the, the heartache, the strife, the violence, the suffering could have been alleviated if people would just improve their diet a little bit. I mean, kind of wishful thinking, but a lot of people, a lot of activists uh, across history have always thought about um, the re relationship between diet and violence, which, by the way, I've posted another poll up here about a particular quote. Uh, I'll give the answers to these if I don't forget uh, at the end. So yeah, Jack McClellan. Very sadly, uh, when he died, someone had, he was living in Spain when he died and someone broke into his um, house and stole all of his awards and trophies and gear and everything and it really broke his heart. So his last years were kind of sad ones. Uh, but one thing we can do to honor his legacy is remember him. Very cool man. So speaking of Jack McClelland, there was also uh, two, of, two of his colleagues who were working in Northern Ireland, not Irish-born, but Anglo-Irish. They were lived, lived in Ireland their whole life, and that is Brian and Margaret Gunn King. And they collaborated quite a bit with Jack and his wife. And they were also leaders in the Vegan Society. They were also leaders in the International uh, Vegetarian Union. 
Uh, they set up a headquarters for the IVU in uh, Northern Ireland where they had cooking demonstrations, yoga classes even. Uh, and when they first opened it, something like 50 people showed up to celebrate. And this is in the 60s, right? So this is a time when you would think there's not really much going on as far as vegan activism in Ireland. But in fact, it was there's a lot of work that was being done. Absolutely, absolutely a lot. Uh, also in 1966, so in the 60s, down in the Republic, the Irish Council Against Blood Sports forms. And then also we start to see vegetarian restaurants re-emerging. Re so in 1972, Good Karma, a vegetarian restaurant in Dublin, opened. It didn't last that long, but there it was. Uh, in the 1970s, we see the McClellans and the Gun Kings uh, come back again, and they, they are on the Gordon Burns Hour on Ulster Television talking about veganism in the 70s, right? Um, let's see, what else in, in this kind of history? Oh, I know the other thing is uh, in, in Belfast, in the height of the Troubles in the 1980s, the what I would call the longest running vegan restaurant was started in what they call the War Zone Collective, and it was kind of a pay as you go sort of thing. It's not the same name anymore. I forget what the new name is, but it started in the height of the, really the height of the Troubles, and it's still going along today. It was a place where people could come and listen to music, and bands performed, and you um, like veganism has always been a part of that punk scene, and veganism has always been an expression of one's political identity. So it's almost. It's in one way, it's like, gosh, how could a vegan restaurant uh, emerge at the height of the troubles? But on the other hand, because there's so much intersectional awareness throughout these issues, as we saw with the earlier activists of the late 1800s, in a way that it is actually predictable. So I guess that's where I want to leave it. I've been talking for over 30 minutes and I don't want to go on and on, but I did want to just highlight that, you know, at the height of the troubles, we have a lot of vegan activism happening. Uh, in, the, in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s. And then even in the 1800s, at the height of colonial oppression, we have a lot of vegan and animal rights activism that's happening. Uh, really, really fascinating, lost history. And I think that we should celebrate on St. Patrick's Day, not just seeing how many pints we can drink. My record is, <laughs> I shouldn't say, a lot. Um, but also remembering Ireland as an important contributor to the animal rights history to the discourse and to um, the status the bettered status of animals even today all the way starting all the way back in the 1600s but perhaps we can really if we had to pick one person that really got it going maybe good old richard martin in the early 1800s with his uh, cruelty against cattle act so there you go i guess before i forget i want to give you the answers to the to the polls poll questions so what year did guinness go vegan 2017. I remember it well. I've never had a Guinness before because I've been vegan for 20 years. Uh, I was actually living in Cork at the time and I trotted my little butt down to the pub at Cavanaugh's in Cork and I had my first proper poured pint of Guinness. Thank the gods. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, the second question is which country in the West boasts the, animal, the oldest animal rights law? Well, that should be a given. That is Ireland. So if you want to look at Richard Martin's act, that would be the UK. But like I said, even before that in the 1600s, the first animal rights laws are really about um, plowing, so horses, and then sheeps. The last question, I have a quote here. Uh, it is strange that the most violent Republicans I know are all vegetarians. Brussels sprouts seem to make people bloodthirsty, and those who live on lentils and artichokes are always calling for the gore of the aristocracy. Arist arist aristocracy, I can't say it. And for the severed heads of kids, <laughs> kings, why can't I talk?
<laughs> anyway, in this political sphere, a diet of green beans seems dangerous. That's Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde was not a vegan, not a vegetarian, but he did he did mock them quite a bit. However, you can if you look at other bits of his writing, he really did believe in the promise of humane education, which was a major um, campaign of the Victorian era. This belief that uh, if we teach kids to be nice to animals, it's going to make a better world. So, of course, you can always look to Oscar Wilde for a <laughs> smart-ass comment. But yeah, it really was believed that vegetarianism was kind of linked up in all these more radical causes. And at the time, it really actually was very much so the case. All right, uh, I can hang around for a little bit if anybody has any questions. If not, I'll wrap it up. So thanks, to, thanks you guys for hanging around. Wendy says, uh, my Guinness effects. No, it's something about reading big words on camera. I'm going to stumble. <laughs> I'm a teacher by trade. I do it all the time. I just got to learn not to be embarrassed. Thanks, Nella. And thanks, Ray, for all your <laughs> comments. Wendy McGovern says, people are not often aware of these early intersections of feminists and anti-vivisectionists. The brown dog incident is such a powerful moment in history. Absolutely. I think it's actually quite a crime shame that more people aren't aware of that. And I think that the, the, the fact that Irish nationalists were really at the heart of that as well is really forgotten to history. So just a, one more quick plug. I have a book coming out on this very topic, Animals in Irish Society, that's publishing with SUNY Press, so the State University of New York Press, in July. Uh, it's got an academic book pr uh, price tag on it, but you can find lots of my research for free, absolutely free, on my website. I've got a podcast series just on this topic. And um, I've got lots of essays and blogs on my website as well. Uh, Wendy says, how long did it take me to research this book? Eight million years. <laughs> Eight million years. Uh, no, like literally a long time. And it actually started out with, uh, I was living in Cork at the time, and I was invited to contribute a book on, uh, a book chapter um, on, uh, on whatever. It was a list of different stuff. And I was like, well, I'm in Ireland. I might as well take advantage of the fact I'm here, and I'll just write mine on Ireland. And I found that as I was trying to put this chapter together, there was close to nothing at the time. So this was 2015. Yeah, 2015 is when I got started on it. And there was very little of anything out at that time. And so I just went down a rabbit hole and started learning and reading and realized that a book chapter is not going to be enough. There's so much history here that needs to be remembered. And for me, I think it's a political act. I think that it says a lot about the disenfranchisement of the Irish people, this long stereotype against uh, and disparagement of the Irish people that they've been forgotten from this history. And so for me, I felt like it was a duty <laughs> that I re, re, um, brought it to the surface so that people could be aware of this lost history. So it took me, uh, I started off with that early book chapter and then uh, I, I basically the, the summer of 2017, I just went hard on it, worked on it all day, every day for the whole summer. And I could have kept going. In fact, I had to cut out quite a lot um, my publisher cut me off at 300 pages, <laughs> which is only like a, uh, less than 200 pages in print. So I could have kept going, honestly. Um, yeah, Ray says that it's an interesting point that the Irish were animalized by the English. They were also animalized by the Americans. So, of course, 
uh, millions of Irish people immigrated to America. And so animalizing people in that way justified their lesser treatment. And for those who aren't aware, they were literally animalized. If you looked at, at images of them in drawings in the United States and in England, they would literally be drawn as monkeys and apes or pigs. And that was, I mean, it was ubiquitous. There's actually whole books written on this. There's a guy named L.P. Curtis, maybe it's a woman, uh, but they have books on uh, documenting this process. It's really horrific. And in the United States, they had, did a lot of vaudeville in the United States. And sometimes they would bring out actual chimpanzees to represent Patty or Bridget. Any other questions? Are we ready to get our pint on? I want to thank you again for hanging around. Uh, I'm going to post this up on my website for people who couldn't make it. Slancha Mokara!